Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Brethren in Christ, laudate Jesus Christus in secula. This is Timothy Flanders with the Meaning of Catholic. I'm joined today by Dr. E. Michael Jones. Dr. Jones, thanks for coming on the show again. You're welcome. You're welcome. Today we're going to be talking about scientism and magic. This is a running theme in a lot of Dr. Jones' work, very relevant to the situation that we're dealing with today with the COVID-1984 regime right. and crisis. And before we get into the topic, I want to invite everybody to go to culturewars.com. Make sure you subscribe to Culture Wars magazine. Dr. Jones is the editor, and I believe a new issue just came out January. Just just hit the the electronic version just went out today. Excellent. On so, Cardinal Cardinal Stepinots, among other things, why Cardinal Stepinots is not a saint, why he wasn't canonized, other articles as well. Excellent. Yes. Please take a look at culturewars.com. You can also buy all the books we're going to quote and talk about today. But before we get into scientism and magic, Dr. Jones, can we have your comments on the revolution in the united states is, is the color revolution complete at this point uh no no it's not complete but there is one going on and uh, we are witnessing uh, state-of-the-art warfare this is state-of-the-art warfare uh let me just give you a comparison uh years back if the, you had a banana republic and uh, you wanted to have a coup d'etat, the military would surround the television station with tanks. You take over the television station and then you start broadcasting your version of reality to, to the people. Uh, we are now, we can't do that. The tank now is an obsolete weapon because the information technology has gotten so big, so big that it can't be surrounded by, by physical, physical weapons. So what we saw in uh, two days ago is political theater of the, the most arrogant and uh, refined sort. Uh, what you hear about in the mainstream media is the Trump supporters broke into the Capitol and they're, they're rioters and we need to deal with them. It's treason, blah, blah, blah. We're, the, the mainstream media are trying to whip up a lynch mob now, basically. And uh, Trump is supposed to be the first guy to be lynched. But uh, unfortunately for the mainstream media, every man is a reporter now. You know, we start, every man his own priest, every man his own reporter, every man has a cell phone and all of the people who were there have cell phones. So what we saw uh, was, and this has been corroborated by people I've talked to who were there, first person account, is Antifa. Antifa coming in, uh, rushing to the head of the parade, uh, rushing toward the Capitol, and then miraculously, the cops, the three cops that they had assigned to the most secure, second most secure building in the United States of America, <laughs> pull back the barricades. This is all on YouTube, all videos you can find. And they say, come on in. Maybe not in exactly those words. So Antifa goes in. And so, what is the purpose? Cui bono. Well, the purpose of this was to prevent any discussion in the Senate of fraud in the election. Because up to that time, 
the mainstream media have simply categorically denied that any fraud took place. This would have been a situation where before the Congress, we have people bringing evidence forward. Well, that was completely derailed. This is not in Trump's interest to do this. This is not in the interest of Trump supporters. It was obviously being orchestrated by people who wanted uh, to suppress that information. So in this regard, it is very similar. We look at the similarities. Similarities to Charlottesville, where the white boys were lured into a trap, uh, where instead of uh, leading Antifa into the building, the cops threw the white boys into Antifa instead of protecting them from, instead of standing between them. Or even more apropos is the recent large COVID riots, uh, not riots, the COVID demonstrations in Berlin. Germany is leading the world in anti-COVID lockdown protests. What happened there? They had a million people and a group of people then broke into the Bundestag. Well, you don't break into the Bundestag. I'm sorry. You know, unless they let you go in. So they let them go in. As soon as they let them go in, all they start saying it's terrorism. They're trying to take over the government. This is what's happening now. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Um, well, this goes straight into the the heart of the dichotomy that I see in your work, which is between logos and anti-logos. Right. Now, I, I sent you uh, what I could summarize of these terms um, previous, but I, I want to read a quote from Degenerate Moderns, uh, page 11. You summarize what I, what I would term as voluntarism, as there, there are ultimately only two alternatives in the intellectual life. Either one conforms desire to the truth or truth to desire. So I see the, the logos as the rational order of the universe, the second person of the Trinity known by faith and reason. And then voluntarism is subordinating one's intellect to one's desires, one's will. Is this the city of God, city of man dichotomy? Yeah, it's, I got it from the city of God. Uh, it's basically God. Uh, the city of God is uh, the uh, what is it now? I forget the extinction of uh, uh, self. Oh, love of love of God to the extinction love of, love self. of yeah. God to the extinction of self, and the city of man is love of self to the extinction of God. So yeah, I obviously had that in mind when I made up this this distinction. Instead of self, I talked about passion, desire, and all all that other type of stuff because I was talking about uh, how do you deal with people. Uh, how do you deal with the intellectual life? It's not, it's not all the same thing. Sometimes you're dealing with one group of people and sometimes you're dealing with another group of people of the two that I described. And if you're going to talk about someone who subordinates uh, uh, desire to the truth, well, then the only important thing I have to talk about is the truth. So what, did you get the truth or not? Did you fail or, or what? But if it's the other type of person, then the best access into the thought of, let's say someone like Margaret Mead is not to talk about the truth. It's you, what happened in Samoa is not really what happened. We talk about your desires because your desires are basically the thing that control your life. And that's the, the key to understanding your thinking. And that was, that, as you said, came out of degenerate models, which I did like, 30 years ago. So is this the, can you describe what is science exactly? What What is the process of real science? Now you, in Logos Rising, you really bring this out. Right. Does, can you define what is true science? 
yeah, science is this. this so let's go uh, to the beginning in terms of uh, Logos rising. You had a group of, uh, you, have, you have the first attempt to understand ultimate reality and it's called mythology. Uh, so every single culture has an understanding that there is a God who created everything, that he lives in the sky and he's a father. Every culture, every primitive culture has that. Okay, so then you think, well, that's the basis. Let's see what we can extrapolate from that. And you think, well, if he's a father, he must have a beard. And if he's got a beard, does he shave every day? Or what, you know, so you're going down the, to the trail of myth here at this point. And the culmination of myth is Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey. This is the culmination of trying to understand uh, forces of the universe according to uh, symbolic principles. Okay, now that uh, was the beginning of, of Greek thought, uh, but there are people, people who were dissatisfied with it and they came to be known as the physiologoi. Uh, they were scientists, they were the first scientists and we're talking about someone like Thales of Miletus who said that everything was water. Now, what, what are you saying here? There is an everything, that's an important statement. And we can unify this everything according to some type of logos and we're gonna call it water but they didn't have those terms. So this is the first primitive example. And then they tried to come up with one example after another, like, well, if it's not water, maybe it's air because air is all around us. And then Heraclitus finally came up and said, maybe it's fire. Now this was much more sophisticated than what Thales was, was saying. He was probably influenced by Zoroastrianism, but he also said that fire is a logos. Fire, in other words, fire is something that is constantly changing and constantly the same. He said the same thing about a river. And so this tension is what uh, really moved this whole idea forward. And then uh, whoever it was, Anaxagoras said it was noose, which is mind. And, and uh, Aristotle said he was like a, a sober man among drunks because he came up with that idea. Now they took it as far as they could go because they didn't have any instruments to take it any farther. There was no microscope, there was no telescope, they couldn't look at the heavens in any effective way. And so it just petered out and the Greeks then decided, well, let's do something practical. Let's, let's win lawsuits uh, because you can make money that way. And that became the sophist. And then Socrates then disagreed with the sophist and said, there's gotta be something more to that. And that led to Plato and that led to Aristotle. And at that point it stopped. I mean, basically, there were no more advances because they had taken it as far as it could go. And then you had the momentous event of uh, Christianity. Now, in which St. John took that tradition and validated it because we needed, the church needed to talk to Greeks now as opposed to Hebrews. And I talked about the, you know, the St. Paul speech at the Areopagus, which was a failure. He failed. He didn't tell. They, they, he said, this, this man rose from the dead. And they said, well, well, we'll talk about that some other time. And I think St. John knew that. And I think that's why he began his gospel with Greek philosophy and metaphysics, which is basically in the beginning, there was Logos. Logos was with God and Logos is God. Well, that was, that was such a stunning event. Okay. That nobody did anything for the next 1500 or let's say 1000 years, 15, whatever, 1200 years, 1300 years. But think about it. 
And that was basically theology because it was so profound and so inexhaustible that they just thought about it. So it turns out that uh, in, your, in the city of God, you can read that uh, St. Augustine says that salamanders live in fire. Well, he said that because someone else said it. And he said, it, it wasn't, I'm going to talk about salamanders, like the city of God is really about salamanders. No, that's not what it's about. But he said that if, if salamanders can live in fire, then your soul can suffer in purgatory or something like that. But he accepted that fact that salamanders lived in fire. So for another, basically 1,200 years, and finally somebody says, is that true? The salamanders live in fire, and someone realized, no, what they do is they live in rotting logs. You throw that rotting log on the fire, and a salamander is going to jump out because he doesn't like it. So this is the beginning of now, after of like 1,200 years, now we're going to look at the actual real world. And we're not just going to take authorities as our example when we talk about salamanders. We're actually going to look at salamanders. And one of the first, the, the main man who did this was Albert the Great. And Albert the Great now is the beginning of science. If by that we mean empirical examination of nature. That, that's what it was. And that's what he was doing. And so Stanley, Stanley Yockey says, uh, science began in Paris in 1277 when Bishop Etienne Tompier condemned Averroism. Well, okay, I can understand what you're saying. He said, because Averroism, if there are two truths, then you cannot examine the physical world. You've just denied the principle of contradiction. In other words, there are metaphysical foundations that you have to follow if you want to be accurate in your understanding of the world. But uh, so I think that's what he was trying to say. But it really began with Albert the Great, who decided, I'm just going to look at things. And he wrote uh, treatises on everything, you know, all sorts of stuff that no, everyone or no one had paid any attention to. And that was the situation that led to science. So I hear you saying there's a great deal. The, the, the factor, the main factors are observation, observing something uh, for real, uh, the principle of non-contradiction. Now, how do we contrast this experimental empirical science with magic? What is the essence of magic? Is magic a okay. form of voluntarism? Yes, because it depends on your will. So the difference, C.S. Lewis said this in one of his books, uh, the difference between magic and prayer. Prayer is where you uh, pr pray to God that he he will do you a favor and do what you're asking for. Magic is you're commanding someone. You have some type of spell and you can command someone. Now, okay, guess what? You can't command God to do anything. And, and Wilhelm Schmidt was the man who doing that brilliant type of anthropological research at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century in primitive, primitive religions. Uh, who talked about, well, how did, how did polytheism come into existence? Because all primitive peoples are monotheistic. Well, it comes into existence because you want to pray for something that you shouldn't have. Like, I'd, I'd really like to sleep with my neighbor's wife. Well, you're not going to pray to God to that. He, he's got rules about that. But you have the sense there are spirits out there who would listen if you did that. And there are. They're called fallen angels, and they had they called them gods, but they were fallen angels who acted uh, pretty poorly. They acted like uh, unrestrained fashion, 
And that was the beginning of polytheism. And you ended up with a country like India, where you've got 33 million gods. So that was the beginning of that. There's this element of voluntarism uh, involved in it, the difference. And so what you had, uh, it began, so when did science enter Europe? I'm, I'm sorry, when did magic enter Europe? It entered in the, in the uh, 15th century, 1429 to be exact, when the, the Council of Florence took place and all of the Orthodox came to Florence and brought with their guy, George uh, Gamistos, uh, who was Amagos in the tradition of Neoplatonism and uh, all of the stuff that uh, the paganism, the magic that uh, Julian the Apostate tried to resurrect and make normative for the Roman Empire. And suddenly it's the hermetic corpus. Uh, there have different words for it. And uh, uh, Cosimo de' Medici is the man who's paying for the whole thing. And he starts listening to this guy and he thinks, I can see possibilities here. And he gives, turns it over to Ficino and he says, I want you to translate this into Latin because I see possibilities. And one of the possibilities of magic was uh, alchemy. And alchemy was a good idea because money was gold. And if you could multiply gold, you could multiply money. And so that's where it entered the European bloodstream uh, at the time of the Renaissance. The Renaissance was, in, in a sense, the beginning of magic. It then went over the Alps with uh, Roy Klein, who got into a big controversy with a converted Jew, and then it started spreading farther until it ended up with John Dee in England, who made magic uh, basically the uh, the operating system of the British intelligence service. He worked for Walsingham, he was a spy, and he was going to uh, summon angels. And that's how they were going to find out information. They were gonna send angels off to listen to the people they wanted and they were supposed to come back. Now, I think, to be honest with you, I think Dee did make contact with angels, but they were fallen angels, uh, as is always the case. And I know they're fallen angels because uh, a real angel or a good angel will not tell you to get engaged in wife swapping, which is exactly what John Dee did with his fabulous. They swapped wives. Uh, that's not going to be a good angel. And so that led to Flood, Robert Flood, who was the champion of alchemical, the alchemical tradition. And he just got uh, uh, obliterated in his correspondence with Father Mersenne, who was the uh, a colleague of Rene Descartes, and then Cartesianism basically took over as the scientific foundation. And what was the regnant scientific foundation up until Newton, who, and it uh, turns out he was an alchemist too, <laughs> but nobody knew that for a long time. So what, so this car also corresponded to another development, which is basically the rise of nominalism, which is probably too complicated to get into at this point, but uh, the Protestant Reformation. So you're, this is the period of religious wars. Descartes fought in the Battle of White Mountain in Bohemia. He was involved in religious warfare and everybody was sick of theology at this point. Nominalism had corrupted scholasticism. It was indis you know, minute distinctions about things that were not significant. That was the, the, the how many angels can dance on the head of the pin kind of summarizes their contempt for scholasticism at that point. And this seemed to have real world applications. So like these parabolas, that had a direct connection with artillery fire. 
So this is why everybody's sick of religious wars and science seems to propose the alternative to that. So let's all become scientific. All right. So you, you have a um, great uh, summary of John D. Sir Francis Bacon, uh, Thomas Hobbes, and into Isaac Newton, very much trying to justify the status quo of the theft of church property, which is ultimately just that voluntarism. And you have Isaac Newton. Now, I, quoting here from Baron Metal 447, 449, you say this, Newton's, Newton's assertions about gravity, you say, the math makes sense, but the Newtonian system remains fundamentally unfathomable because neither Newton nor his epigoni could explain either what gravity was or how it worked. Now, I've linked below in the show one of your longer conferences on Newton. So there's a lot more detail in this sh in that show that right. we linked. But right. can you just, for the viewers, explain? You know, isn't there a force of gravity? Is this is this just a magical force that he invented? Can you break that down for us? What he did was uh, he 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 invented the inverse. Well, let me put it this way: he either invented the inverse square law, or he discovered the verse. Uh, the inverse square law, or he stole it from his predecessor, whose name uh, Boyle, I believe it was Boyle, uh, because he was a master academic schemer, uh, Newton, very unpleasant character. So, okay, the inverse square law is true. I think that's true. Everybody agrees that it's true, but that's just one law. So how does that fit into the universe? In order to have the universe, you have to have a cosmology. And the cosmology uh, Newton smuggled into the universe was the cosmology of Empedocles, which he got from alchemy, from studying alchemy. And Empedocles said that everything is love or strife. So obviously there is a force that holds the universe together. Okay, Empedocles called it love. Uh, Newton called it gravity. And instead of strife, he called the other one inertia. So gravity and inertia create a circular motion, which is perfect. And at that point, you don't need God. And that was the end of divine providence. That's the end of divine providence because God does not intervene in human history because it's a clock that he winds up and it runs all by itself. So you have to be able to distinguish between, as I said, a certain scientific mathematically describable principles and the cosmology, which is completely imported from paganism. So he's basically asserting that there is such a force of gravity, which before him, you could just simply say, well, that's just the logos of motion. That's just the way that motion works. Whereas he's saying that this is this magical no, no, force. Now, wait a minute. Gravity, you have to put gravity and inertia together to have the circular motion that we're talking about. You have to have both of them together. Dante called it love. So Dante got the idea from Empedocles as well. This is the love. This is the God's love basically holding everything together. That's And, and they had... I mean, then the question is, how, do, how does it hold things together? Because Newton couldn't explain that either. Newton believed in force. Uh, he, he believed in force at a distance. But in order to have force at a distance, you have to have uh, ether. Well, there is no ether. Everything is just balls whizzing around in a vacuum. Well, that's because that's atomism. It's atoms in the void. That's So he's, imp he's importing all these uh, uh, pagan... Uh, cosmologies kind of hammering them together and but saying that it's science because of the mathematical 
uh, explanation that he can give for it. So basically, if we define this as scientism, meaning it's it's not magic, we're not invoking demons, we're not invoking hocus pocus, whatever. Um, but there is a, a assertions that are not really empirically being proven. They're simply James being imposed on the actual science that exists. Right. So yeah, it's like categories of the mind and categories of reality. And there's always this element of sleight of hand going, going on here. So yes, there is some force that holds the universe together, but for you to call it uh, gravity and then to all that other extrapolation, even though you can describe its effect through the inverse square law, that's true, you can, uh, but that doesn't change the fact that uh, we're dealing with a distinction here between categories of the mind and categories of reality. And you could put, impose other categories of reality uh, of the mind upon it, as I said, uh, had, as Dante had done, and as, as Empedocles has done, had done by calling it love. So I want to ask you about Galileo during this time, because you get into it later on into the 19th century, um, because I, I've read some authors state that Galileo essentially could not prove his system. There were, there were certain holes in it, but it was really Newton that helped explain something of, of the, uh, the Galilean system, because it's said that the gravity from the sun was what was holding everything together. Um, so how do you how do you evaluate the Galilean science? Because I, I believe Galileo was also in alchemy. Uh, uh, the question of whether the Earth goes around the sun or the sun goes around the Earth is a political question. It's not scientific. And the man who proved this was Einstein with the theory of relativity where he says that motion is a function of the position of the observer. So Einstein, uh, Einstein, uh, we're jumping ahead here, but Einstein was reacting to the Michelson-Morley experiments where they had an inferometer and they wanted to detect, uh, see if you can detect motion. Uh, they could not detect by, by the speed of light. They could not detect motion. Well, this is a crisis. Uh, for the whole uh, edifice of scientism, because certainly by the end of the 19th century, there is such a thing called as scientism, which I would define as the political mobilization of certain scientific uh, uh, rea realities, facts, fictions, whatever you want to call it. It's the political mobilization of that. Uh, so this meant, well, and why were they upset? Because they understood the significance of Galileo because Galileo uh, demoted uh, the earth when he made it go around the sun. This was clear, more clear in Giordano Bruno and Campanella who were sun worshipers. Uh, but you demoted the earth and in doing that, you cast doubt on the uh, biblical narrative because the biblical narrative clearly states that the earth is the center of the universe and that uh, it's the most important, it has uh, pride of place and importance. So do you see the, um, now that we're on the heliocentrism as an Einstein with Michelson Morley and later, uh, I know Soon Genesis has brought up the probes that they've put into the, uh, try to find the center of the universe. And they've sent certain probes out to, to see that the, the whole universe is revolving around the earth or something to that effect. 
do you see heliocentrism as the same sort of scientism as Darwinianism in terms of its basis in experimental evidence? It is a political mobilization of ex experience. And I think both of those things are. I think okay. in, that, in that sense, they're yes, I would say yes. Okay. Um, now, one question I don't understand is when they were determining if there's an ether. Now, why is it that we cannot simply posit that there's, there's a vacuum between the sun and the earth? You've mentioned how if there's no ether, then the sun and the earth are, are touching. Right. Well, it's, it's simple. If, the, if there's nothing between the earth and the moon, they're touching, right? There's nothing between them. Well, you're saying that this nothing has the property of keeping them separated. And not only that, that the, the moon has agency over the earth through nothing. That's impossible. I'm, I'm talking about the tides now. How is it that the moon can make it high tide and low tide? What is the, what is the, what is the medium here? Well, they're saying there is no medium. Well, if there's no medium, then you cannot have force exerted from the moon to the earth. It's impossible. You can't have it. You have to have, if you're going to say that these uh, bodies influence each other, you're going to have to explain how, and Newton couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Because you can't have a vacuum. Nature abhors a vacuum. You can't, if there's nothing between two bodies, they are touching. They are obviously not touching, so there is something between them that is holding them apart. It's that simple. Okay, so basically it's just a something out of nothing basically because they're saying that something can come out of nothing in the sense that there's if there's nothing between these two bodies there's nevertheless something coming out of this nothing to right separate and this okay this is this is actually a profound uh insight into science uh that goes all the way back to parmenides one of the most brilliant thinkers in the history of philosophy who said that which is cannot come from that which is not. That is absolutely true. And, the, and one of the things that contradicts that absolutely in fundamental way is Darwinism. Darwinism is based on the, on the claim that something can come from nothing. That is impossible. It's metaphysically impossible. Now, Parmenides had his problems because uh, uh, there can be no change, according to Parmenides. Change is obviously a form of life, uh, a, form, a, a part of our experience as human beings. And so um, you have Heraclitus. Nobody knows whether Heraclitus came first or Parmenides came first, but they, they are proposing uh, opposite uh, uh, explanations. There's no change possible for uh, uh, Parmenides. Uh, well, then what, what stability is possible for uh, Heraclitus, the man who says Panta Rey, or everything is in flux? That, that's the, the problem that neither one could solve. It was solved by Aristotle when he came up with uh, pot potentiality and act by saying, no, there's not nothing in that, uh, that oak, in that acorn. The entire oak tree is in that acorn in potential. And all you need is the proper circumstance and it will unfold. That is the best explanation for evolution. Okay, that is a good explanation for evolution. It's already there and a potentiality will come out later, but that is not the Darwinian explanation. The issue with Darwin is not uh, evolution. The issue with Darwin is atheism because he, he's trying to say that uh, the universe can create itself. 
this that when we had the the dance craze known as the new atheism daniel dennett uh, made one of the stupidest statements in the history of philosophy. And he was a philosopher. He's the only philosopher among that crowd. And he said, the universe created itself ex nihilo, out of nothing or out of something very small. <laughs> Colossal. So not only, not only did you make the colossally stupid statement that the universe created itself out of nothing. Well, wait a minute, professor, I have a question. I know I'm in the back row here, but I still have a question. Uh, that means, doesn't aren't you saying then that the universe had to exist before it existed? How is that possible? That's impossible. So uh, Dennett, as if he understands what a stupid statement he makes, then he completely ruins it by saying, or out of something very small. Well, whatever it is, no matter how small it is, it exists. So we already have existence. So it's already there. Preposterous. But this is Darwinism. They're all committed Darwin, Darwinists, and they're all trying to tell you that something can come out of nothing. No, impossible. Right. Uh, the, Darwinianism, certainly a perfect example of, of observing something real, which is the microevolution, and extrapolating into the ethers of time, something else. Or um, more for extrapolating to creation. And Aquinas said, creatio non est cambio. Creation is not change, okay? Change is from one state to another. Creation is from no state to one state, completely different. And they, we, we have lost any type of metaphysical speculation in talking about things like that. So you've, and once again, viewers can watch your whole conference on Newton and Darwin. They both go into the Whig history of capitalism and right. I wanted to get into, but before we do capitalism, I wanted to address two other scientisms that I see, which are also intimately linked. And one is, one's Malthus and population control, and the other one is psychoanalysis, which are very closely linked. So I know Malthus is a progenitor to Darwin. Um, and no, I no, just- wait, wait a minute, he comes after Darwin. Malthus is the beginning of the 19th century. Pa yes. Parson, Parson Malthus, yeah. I, I'm talking Thomas uh, Melfis, the the population control. Um, right. Is that saying population came out at the beginning right. of the 19th century? Right. So is this another scientism? Is there? Is well, this I, no. I, I he's just he's just trying trying to give an essay on population, in which he says that uh, populations increase geometrically and the food supply increases arithmetically, so therefore there will always be starvation. He had Ireland in mind, which is kind of chronic periods of starvation. Uh, but I would say the scientism uh, that's based on top of that would be something like eugenics. So the conclusions, the, po the political conclusions you draw from something that looks like a scientific fact. Population okay. control followed from that. The whole Rockefeller, Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller III was convinced that Malthus was right. Turns out he's never right in actuality because uh, you always have human creativity that allows more and more production. So the culmination of this came in 68 when Paul Ehrlich wrote the population bomb and said that India was going to starve to death in the 1970s. I was actually there in India and by God, they're still there. I can testify to that firsthand. I know it. I saw it. And there are a lot of them. And there are a lot more than when uh, Paul Ehrlich wrote his book and they're all eating. 
and they're all they some uh, the food is all over the place on the sidewalk they have the freshest food in the world because you just go out and eat off the sidewalk and you got you know, when you buy chicken the chicken is there alive looking at you and you order it and, and they, they kill it for you right there on the spot so they're they're doing not to say india doesn't have problems we're dealing with that in the next issue of culture wars brilliant article by uh my friend ravender baines who uh is going to talk about uh usury as the cause of the caste system but anyway to get back to population control that was they tried to impose that on a scientific basis because hey if you're a scientist we have to agree with you well what does that remind you of are you, are you thinking of anthony fauci at the moment and bill gates who come up with one contradictory statement after another uh, makes no sense whatsoever you know when you go into a restaurant it's scientifically proven that if you put the mask on and walk from the door to the table and then take it off at the table and eat your meal, you will never get COVID. And that's completely different than going to church, which is a, a, a hotbed of contagion. It's preposterous. It's preposterous. And it's all being imposed on us in the name of scientism. Now, with, with Malthus, there's a strong correlation with Freudian sexual ethics coming out of psychoanalysis. Interestingly, Franz Brentano, the Catholic priest, later heretic after Vatican I, was the teacher of Freud. So some authors I've read point out that he had some Aristotle initially, but psychoanalysis quickly is dominated by Jews. It's used politically. It's combined with Malthus to justify birth control. Um, and now, where did all these scientists, science at least scientists elites come and take over? Is it because they want this sexual revolution, sexual liberation? Um, can you discuss? Okay, first of, all, first of all, I would make a distinction here uh, between an ethnic distinction. Okay, population control, Malthus, that's Protestant, it's Anglo and it led to the Rockefellers and population control and birth control, okay? Freud is Jewish. He was never anything but Jewish. He knew it at a time when Jews were not, did not have the political power that they have now. They were a despised minority in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And he lived in the capital of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, uh, Vienna. And they were even more despised then than they had been a hundred years ago uh, before that because of usury and the, the grind people being ground into dust by usury, uh, beginning with the, the Rothschild family and their rise to power as the uh, money lenders to all of Europe. So Freud is Jewish and uh, Freud, the Jewish psychology leads to abortion in the United States, whereas the Malthusian wasp ideology led to birth control. And there was a time when Margaret Sanger, who was the representative of the wasp elite, would say basically, you know, you don't like abortion, then you have to have birth control. Support me. I'm against abortion. She was not against abortion, but she would say that. So I'm saying if you're talking about fundamentally different things here. You're talking about the difference between England and the continent, uh, England and the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The large Jewish population in the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, living as a kind of despised uh, minority and full of resentment at that fact and dying to take revenge on the 
the goyim. Uh, and that's that I think uh, explains Freud's uh, attachment to Hannibal, his animus against Rome, his uh, animus against the Catholic Church, and his use of uh, Jung, C.G. Jung, as the his uh, goyish protege who was going to bring this uh, psychological warfare, this weapon of psychological warfare into uh, the mainstream form. Uh, I, I've linked another talk of when you were on uh, Peter Helen's show talking about Heisenberg, and this is a great chapter in Logos Rising. But I wanted to ask you about Frings and Ratzinger, because uh, viewers, you can watch this, that the detailed explanation from Dr. Jones about the psychological warfare in post-war Germany. And better buy the book, because that's yeah. the best explanation. It's yes, a chapter, of course. Chapter in Logos Rising. Explain what happened to Germany after World War II. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Um, definitely. I I think, honestly, I think Logos Rising is one of the greatest works of the past 50 years. So thank you. Please thank you. take a look at Logos Rising. I think it really is top notch stuff. I But I thought of this quote over actually from Living Machines. And um, because what you, you, you allude to with Frings, Frings is at the forefront of the German form of Legion of Decency. He's fighting against the pornography, Schmutz und Schund. Schmutz um, und Schund. I don't think I said it right, thank you. Schmutz uh, und Schund. And uh, Frings and his, his uh, peritus, Ratzinger, and they ultimately um, help the, what, what you mentioned in um, Cultural Revolution, the uh, Catholic Church and Cultural Revolution, is that there is a, a strong revolution not revolutionary but a, a a desire of ratzinger and frings to push back against what ottaviani wants to do with now, now wait a minute now wait a minute i would distinguish between ratzinger and frings i see them as very different uh, a, a generational conflict here and i think one of the frings frings was a courageous man he was like graf von Gallen. you'll never I, we just never see bishops like that again I mean, Graf von Gallen stood up to Hitler. He was an aristocrat. He was a huge guy. He could have played football for the New York Giants. Uh, a very imposing guy. And he knew he was an aristocrat. And he had none of the inferiority complex that we associate with Germans, especially German Catholics now. And he just told Hitler, you know, I'm not going to do it. He, of course, he supported Hitler's invasion of uh, Russia because he wanted to end Bolshevism. Okay, Frings is similar, a similar guy. So in 1947, when the Jew, Henry Morgenthau, who was Roosevelt's uh, treasury secretary, decided he was going to starve Germany to death as punishment for what they did. Uh, Frings stood up and said, uh, if you can find coal uh, to warm your house, then take it. It's not stealing. The same thing applies to food. If there's a warehouse that is holding food and your children are starving, you have a right to break into that warehouse and take the food. And that kept the German people alive for one year until uh, George Marshall came to the rescue, realizing how stupid this policy is. We got Jewish desire for vengeance uh, running our foreign policy here at a time when Bolshevism is ready to roll over Europe. Bad idea. And so the Marshall Plan came into existence, which was bad in its own way, which I try to describe in the rest of that chapter. Yeah, I wanted to read this quote from Living Machines and ask you if this is kind of what happens with Ratzinger and his intimidation towards Kinsey and the other quote-unquote scientists. You, you say this on Living Machines, uh, page 38, 
The Second Vatican Council occurred 40 years too late or 30 years too soon. It should have been held in 1989 after socialism collapsed in the East or in 1919 when Christendom or what was left of it collapsed in Europe. Instead, it arrived during the 60s at a time when everyone still believed in the modern age. It arrived when people thought that flat roofs were practical and that Margaret Mead was an anthropologist. For Catholic colleges and universities, it was the high noon of Catholic inferiority complex as they rushed lemming-like off the high ground of the Catholic intellectual tradition, headlong into the sea of government funding. So is this what happens with Ratzinger? Does he have an inferior credibility complex in the face of the Kinsey that's being pushed in Germany at this time? Is this what happens to him that causes him to enter Second Vatican Council like this? I, I think there is evidence of that. There was a book he wrote right after the council where he talked about how the church needed a new approach uh, he was also talking about what it was like in the council about America, America. There was a different enlightenment in America. It was it was a good enlightenment. It wasn't just a bad French enlightenment. Uh, it was a good enlightenment. Well, where do you get that idea? He then then Ratzinger said uh, there was a council of the media. Well, tell us more, Your Holiness. Which medium? Well, it was Time Magazine, and basically it was the uh, American proposition. That's what he's talking about. But if you go back before that, where did where did the uh, where did it really pinch in his red shoes? It wasn't wearing red shoes at that time, but uh, it came. The crisis came with the Kinsey report. So what what happened after World War II is Germany is a completely conquered nation. The most ruthless form of social engineering is imposed on them in human history, and at this point. <clears throat> In order to publish a book, a magazine, uh, a, a TV show, uh, a play, you have to get a license. And the man who gives out the license is a Jewish psychiatrist from New York City by the name of David Mordecai Levy. And in order to get the license, you have to lie down on the psychiatrist's couch and talk about your guilt for what you did to the Jews. Well, there's a selection process here. You probably figured that out. And so they, you have to do it. So we did it. And now we have cutting, cutting edge, the cutting edge of, uh, of tech, uh, um, uh, communication technology is the illustrated magazine. So we're talking about Spiegel, which was the, uh, the, uh, the Time magazine, the equivalent of Time magazine in Germany, or Stern and others like it, which was the equivalent of Life magazine or Saturday Evening Post or something like that. So at this point, uh, the government is run by the United States, uh, you know, uh, controllers, the proconsul. John J. McCloy was hot, Lord High Governor of Germany, had his own train, traveled around, told them what to do. They withdrew gradually, but they left all of these control mechanisms in place. And so when the Kinsey Report uh, arrives, uh, suddenly the, the church is outflanked because this is science. Damn it, this guy's a scientist. He's an entomologist. Well, wait a minute, what does, what does bug uh, studying gall wasp have to do with human sexuality? Don't ask questions like that. That's, that shows you're a stupid person because the Rockefellers certified this guy as a scientist because they gave him money. And he's walking around like a dog on his hind legs talking about how much he knows about sex. He doesn't know anything about sex. You don't know, there's another first thing about sex. He's a homosexual who's obsessed with sexual, uh, prurient uh, uh, interviewing people, interviewing homosexuals because it's, it's titillating for him. 
but he's portrayed as a scientist. And this is the classic instance of scientism. So this guy is now in all of the illustrated magazines. So now they have censorship there. But wait a minute, this is science. So you can put a lot of TNA now in the magazine and pass it off as science. And the key word that does it is report. This is the, the time when report becomes a German word. The German word is Bericht. There's no word report, but now because of the Kinsey report, you had a whole series of uh, softcore porn movies when I was a teacher in Germany in the early 70s, and they were called the uh, Schulmädchen Report. The Schulmädchen Report, 13, 13, uh, 13 separate uh, uh, sequels to this, to this movie. Now, this is sweeping the nation. Everybody's starting to say, hey, I can use science now as a way of justifying my aberrant sexual behavior because that's exactly what Kinsey did. Now, where is the church? The church is, has the Volksvartbund, which is their uh, equivalent to the Legion of Decency. The guy, it's all pre-war stuff, but now more necessary than ever. And they are com combating schmutz und schund. Well, this is not sexy in every any sense of the word. Schmutz und schund means uh, smut and filth. Well, smut, what kind of word is that? You know what I mean? We're talking about the age of Pornhub and you're talking about smut or filth. You see what I'm saying? The, the words uh, the words themselves were uh, seemed archaic and the Catholic Church lost its nerve. And I think Ratzinger was one of the guys who lost his nerve at that point. I think he did. And if, I would really love to talk to, I, there's so many things I like. I have talked to Rossinger a number of times, but I never got around because I didn't know this information when I was there to talk to him. So, but I'd love to ask him questions like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd like to look into the newest biography to see what they say about this period in his life. Um, but now we're in the COVID-1984 regime and the, uh, the churches are closing because of the experts. Now, since Radziger and this uh, church losing its nerve to the scientism, has the church surrendered to scientism? Yes, unfortunately, it has. Now, what, in what respect? Uh, I, there was an article in First Things written by a Dominican, I forget his name, uh, in which he talked about uh, the state and he talked about medicine in a way that... Uh, I, I talk about at the end of Logos Rising as the classic expression of ahistorical Thomism. In other words, you're talking as if these words exist in some platonic realm of form. Well, is, are we talking about medicine? Is that really what we're talking about here? I mean, I know they're claiming this medicine. Is it? Is it the state? Who is the state now? Who, 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 is, who has the power of the state now? Well, pretty clear Donald Trump doesn't have it. Uh, who has it? Uh, well, it looks like uh, Mr. Zuckerberg because he's the one who's telling Donald Trump what he's allowed to say or the Dorsey, the guy who's running Twitter. Uh, so what do you mean by the state? And so you can't formulate an argument in this kind of realm of platonic forms in a vacuum, in an ahistorical vacuum. You have to deal with what, what, are we, what is COVID? What is that? What is the actual threat? And so you have these statements, which are you know complicated statements 
about, you know, do you have a, do you have a Christian duty to take a vaccine that's going to make you sick for a disease that has a 99.9% survival rate? That's, they're the realities we're going to have to talk about. Or if you don't do that, you're going to succumb to scientism, which, which is basically a huge uh, pandemic that is being orchestrated for political effects. The main political effect being the destruction of Donald Trump. So one last question for you, Dr. Jones. So we've, we've discussed the scientism as a regime of voluntarism, wherein truth is the opinion of the powerful. Yes. How do we pick up the pieces and teach our children true science? True science. You know, um, you, you, you caught me off guard here with a, basically a pedagogical question. Uh, you, you, you'd have to, I, I think that, uh, are you talking about a curriculum for kids or for homeschoolers? Is that what you're talking about? Uh, let, let me, let me just, let me beg off that question. Let me just beg, go back to, uh, the st situation I knew when I was uh, in high school and I had a biology course, I had a, a completely uh, scientific biology course. It had been, it had been uh, genetically modified for Catholic students. And it was all, I, I just, I, look, I saw this in my, uh, basically it was the soup of amino acids just sloshing around out there. And guess what happened? Lightning came down and hit that soup of amino acids. And you know what happened? Life came about. This is preposterous. Do you know what this is? This is Frankenstein. <laughs> whoever, whoever wrote that had Frankenstein in mind or Galvani's experiment. Now, if, if your child is being subjected to that, you should uh, tell him this is preposterous. This has nothing to do with science. And you should take that in and, 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 and confront the teacher with, uh, promoting bullshit as opposed to science. That's, I think, one practical way of dealing with it. Excellent. Well, Dr. Jones, thank you so much for all of your expertise. Thank you for all of your good work for the church. Once again, please go to culturewars.com, subscribe to the magazine, buy Logos Rising. Dr. Jones, any final thoughts for us? Scientism and magic. Yes, Logos is rising. <laughs> we, we're seeing... Uh, a form of consciousness now that I've never seen before. Uh, even in the midst of all our troubles, uh, the one indisputable fact is that we have uh, every man is his own reporter and all they're, they're getting the facts themselves that things like uh, the incident at the Capitol, they're spreading it in spite of all of the ability to uh, the attempt to shut it down on the part of big tech. The mainstream media has become a complete joke Okay, and the classic example of what I'm talking about is fact check. <laughs> if you ever want to be lied to, go to fact check. And so the classic example of this, the number one, uh, you go to the Google uh, news aggregator, the opening page, and the first fact check says, there were no Antifa demonstrators in the Capitol. It was all Trump supporters. 
Now you know what they want you to think. Now you know the lie that you're supposed to accept. And the fact that we're talking this way it shows you that Logos is rising. Excellent. Well, let's offer up an Our Father at the end of the show for the advance and the rise of Logos. In the name of the Father and the Son, the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.